0: Hello, and welcome to Spy Hards Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, don't fly if there's
1: fog. It's actually very wise advice. Yeah, I thought so too. Have you ever flown in fog? I don't know. I'm not someone who sits by the window. Oh really? You just
0: don't like looking at it? No, I like the aisle and just to conk out. Conk out. Oh, fall asleep. Right. That's yeah. a vernacular not used to there. Now I've I've never actually despite many years of going abroad with you, I've never flown with you. No, that's true. That's true. Although I mean, given our living location, that's not a real surprise. Uh well, yeah, that does make sense. Uh I, I, I am curious though, are you the sort of guy who like has to take copious amounts of medication? to get through a flight still, or is that something you've got past now? I uh, used to, but not anymore. No, I'm okay, okay. now. You just kind of just, it's annoying, but you just get past it. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I really quite like flying. Mm. Uh, this is really boring for everyone, though, but I really enjoy flying. Sorry, guys. Uh, but I think before we get to this week's film and introducing this week's guest, we have to induct our next spy-hard-die-hard hard, cam, before you induct a person we have to tell them how they can become one that's right you can join
1: the Spyhard's Diehards by leaving a 5 star review on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review telling us what you enjoy about the show
0: yes 5 star review on Apple Podcasts will grant you access to the Spyhard's Diehards it's an elite club frankly it is indeed but uh, let's bring in our newest member cam who do we have
1: yes we are going to hear from Scotch and Sports who wrote Headline, a must-listen. Five stars. Who doesn't love a good spy movie? From Bond to Men in Black, the hosts of SpyHards bring you the excitement from your favorite movies. A must-listen production, week after week.
0: I can't fault that, and I probably could do with a scotch and soda right about now.
1: Yeah, scotch and sports, that means that your new nickname is the name of this week's movie. Although I suppose you can drop the the from your code name.
0: Yeah, I'd say their codename's still pretty deadly. It is indeed an affair to remember, mm. and and spies, uh, you know, can be quite uh, quite voracious when it comes to uh, bedroom antics. So uh, they might be up to a few affairs from time to time. Mm, indeed, indeed, so it's all part of it's all part of the game, as they say. But uh, getting on with the game, let's get to the review. Well, Cam, we need to make this menage a toi. <laughs> <laughs> and bring on our guest this week. It's his, I think, third time on the show. Maybe fourth. I've lost count. I'm terrible at math, apparently. It is the man with the best name in podcasting, the host of Barbican Station, the Lacare Carre Cast, spyright.com. It is Mr. Jeff Quest. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, it's absolutely our pleasure. Uh, I can't wait to talk about this week's film. You uh,
2: definitely are going to be bringing the expertise we so sorely lack. One hopes. Setting the bar very high now. I'm I'm getting nervous. My hands are clammy. Um, sweat on the brow. We'll see how it goes. Uh, well, I think before we uh, introduce
0: the film, it's been a while since you've been on the show. I think the last time was. Me and you did. A, was that a spy among friends? Is that what we spoke about last time?
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was the last thing. And then before that, it was uh, Day of the Jackal, I think, right?
0: Yeah, that seems about right. But what's uh, what's been new with you? What's been going on with the podcast? What's uh, what's happening?
2: Um, well, just been doing a bunch of stuff for Barbican Station, which looks at uh, the books of McHaren, and also the TV show Slow Horses. The new season is airing now, and uh, that's been fun to re- be recapping that after each episode. And... The Lakari cast have just been putting out a bunch of episodes. Um, talked with uh, his biographer recently because um, he just had a, a new book out and also just, you know, gearing up for the uh, 50th anniversary of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy being released. So, Oh, that's right. Yeah. And I was curious, Jeff, what did you think of the Pigeon Tunnel? It was it was interesting. You know, I mean, I think uh, Lakari kind of got to put out his own version of his stories, you know, kind of he's, he's a wily kind of guy, you know, or he was, you know, when, and so I think uh, Morris had a tricky time trying to pin him down. Um, At least that's what I, my takeaway of that.
1: Yeah, I've been meaning to watch it. I'm going to be catching up once we get the uh, kind of the holidays over with, and I have a bit of a lull, but I've heard
2: nothing but intriguing things about it. Yeah, no, it's, it's well, it's well, very well done. So worth checking out.
0: And for those who don't know, that's a documentary about Jean Le Carré.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, okay, okay. And it's uh, a series of interviews that uh, Edward Morris had with him before he passed away. Um, and there's, you know, it's got some dramatic reenactments, and it's just, it's uh, pretty interesting. Uh, a look at him and his, his views on his career and his life growing up because he had a really wacky childhood. It's uh, it, as long as it's a bit better
0: than the uh, documentary from George Lazenby about his life and times becoming Bond and all the reenactments in that <laughs> film because that that takes some creative <laughs> swings. Let's put it that way.
2: Haven't seen that one, but now now I wanna now I wanna check it
1: out. Oh, oh, it's a must watch. Um, it's fascinating. <laughs>
0: His interpretation of his career is uh, wonderful. I wish I wish I could see it through his lens. But I think you know we've uh, we've already checked your credentials on the show. We know what your favorite spy film is, and you clearly love spies because you do two podcasts about it. Plus, you feature on Spyberry podcast from time to time as well. You like spies, and uh, I think one of your podcasts plays in quite well to what we're talking about this week. So I'll throw the question over to Cam. What have we got lined up? Yes, we are tackling
1: 1967's The Deadly Affair, adapted from the novel by John Le Carré. And that novel was called Call for the Dead. And so it's a little
0: confusing for people. (laughs) And also, like, I think, isn't that his first book? But the first film that came out of his was actually the year before, which is Spy Who Came from the Cold, which was his third book. That's right. Am I charting that right? Wow. Yeah, the
1: novel uh, Call for the Dead came out in 1961. And so it took, I guess, six years for it to hit the screen. Whereas, yes, uh, Spy Who Came In From The Cold was 65.
0: Okay. Now, it's been some time since we've spoken about a Le adaptation. Was the last one The Russia House? Yeah, it was. Okay. So last year at this point, in 2023 is when we did that. And that was a very interesting film. So I'm looking forward to talking about this one. But for those who haven't checked out This Deadly Affair... Oh, no, Cam. (laughs) Dot, 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 more? Uh, dot, 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 more. Actually, I should have expected that from this film. Here is your synopsis. The Deadly Affair, from the author of The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. Charles Dobbs is a secret agent investigating the apparent suicide of a foreign office official, Samuel Fennon. Dobbs suspects that Fennon's wife, Elsa, a survivor of a Nazi-German extermination camp... Might have some clues, but other officials want Dobbs to drop the case. So Dobbs hires a retired inspector, Mendel, to quietly make inquiries. Dobbs isn't at all sure, as there are a number of anomalies that simply cannot be explained away. Dobbs, dot, dot, dot. How are we doing so far? Uh, There's a lot of names (laughs) in this synopsis that are unnecessary. There really is. Oh my, oh my (laughs) heavens. (laughs) Oh no. Right, here we go. Dobbs is also having trouble at home with his errant wife, whom he very much loves, having frequent affairs. He's also pleased to see an old friend, Dieter Frey, who he recruited after the war. With the assistance of a colleague and a retired policeman, Dobbs tries to piece together just who is the spy and who in fact assassinated Fennon. Um, well, okay, no words for that one. Um, no words. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, if, I I don't I don't write for a living, clearly, but if you're going to write a synopsis, I think uh, brevity is uh, what you should be aiming for. If you can't do it in a paragraph, it's not a synopsis. Hmm, fair enough. Uh, yeah, uh, well, I'll I'll throw it over to you, Jeff. Is that overcomplicating the story?
2: Maybe a little bit. Although it is kind of like, it does try and complicate itself. I don't know what you guys thought about uh, this story in particular. It does have some kind of twists and turns to it. So I, I don't know, maybe they, they boil you boil it down to the, the essence there, but it's still a little uh, head-scratcher-ish when you read it out that way.
0: Head-scratcher-ish uh, is actually something I might come back to later. But I, I'm actually curious just to throw it out to to everyone here, Jeff being our resident expert, especially Jean Le Carre. You know, I've assumed you've watched this film before, so maybe cast your mind back to your experience, maybe reading the book for the first time and watching
2: this film for the first time. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, if you're if you're looking at it as an adaption of the novel, it's a pretty faithful adaption um, compared to, to what was written. There's some changes to the story that they make, um, but overall in general, it's pretty faithful to the book. The book I would say is you know thought of as kind of uh, stronger, but not you know like lesser Lacare. Le you know of his earlier work, it's not the the best. It's it's better than mm-hmm. a couple of the other ones. His, his second book was kind of a, a step backwards. I think most people feel like before he had his breakout hit of the Spy Who Came in from the Cold. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I in, I enjoy the novel. I think the mystery overall is a little. Little week, probably, so I think, and I don't know what you thought about the kind of the mystery that we have here that he's trying to unravel Dobbs, um who is actually um in the book George Smiley, and they had to change the name um but yeah, so i don't I don't know what you what, you're the the newcomers to it. what did you think
0: oh we'll, we'll get to what we think, <laughs> I mean just in terms of like first experiences, but then you know, I'll put the question back to you because I didn't hear your answer. The film itself, the first time you watched the film. I'm. I don't know if you read the source material first and then sort of watched it. Like, did you enjoy yourself the first time you watched it? Um.
2: Yes. I mean, it's a very different kind of a movie, though, right? I mean, it's 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 slower. Mm. It's got some interesting music choices. It's got you know. It's it's a little <laughs> s- sedate, you know. So I think there's uh, you know, I mean, if you're coming at it, you know, uh, after having watched the the latest Mission Impossible to this one, you're gonna get a little bit of a whiplash, right? But. uh you know, I think for the time and if you go in kind of with your expectations at the appropriate level, I, I enjoyed it.
1: I watched it immediately after a rewatch of Batman Begins. Perfect pairing.
0: <laughs> that energy just sailed right on through. <laughs> I wonder if it actually would have been better to go the other way around. But, uh, this Into Batman Begins. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I hadn't seen this one before. I. I've not seen any of the Lacara films apart from what we've actually tackled on the show. So every single time we do one, it'll be a first watch for the show, uh, for, for better or for worse. But I, uh, I do want to hear from you, Cam. I'm throwing it back over to you. How did this affair get so deadly?
1: Yeah. So as I said, this was based on Lacara's first novel, and um, this film. You know, we mentioned the um, Dobbs was a stand-in for George Smiley. The Smiley rights were tied to The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Mm -hmm. So those were bought up by Paramount. So unfortunately, they couldn't use that character. But this was actually a film really just developed by director Sidney Lumet. And he made it through his production company. And he was a Philadelphia-born director, which was kind of a surprising thing considering the very Britishness of this movie. But uh, yeah, American director and got his start in the 1950s in TV and worked in TV for quite a while before making his motion picture debut with a little movie called 12 Angry Men. Not a bad movie to start your career off with. One of my favorite films of all time. Yeah. And then he just kind of, like, goes on this run. And there's a lot of, like, you know, spotty films in his filmography, but he was a guy who worked a lot and cranked out movies like The Pawnbroker, Fail Safe, The Hill, which is a very great uh, Sean Connery film from the 60s. And this was his follow-up to the movie The Group, which is maybe one of the lesser-known ones, a drama a, a drama film starring Candace Bergen. But this is a guy who is really just one of the all-time legends, and mm-hmm. once you hit the 70s, you're getting Serpico, Murder on the Orient Express, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, The Wiz, and then, you know, into the 80s, you get The Verdict with Paul Newman, which is a fantastic movie that I believe got James Mason an Oscar, and... Uh, He tapped out, his final film was 2007's Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which was a masterpiece, and he passed away in 2011. This is one of the all-time great directors.
0: Just not his greatest film.
1: Well, we'll get to that, Scott. And Mm. uh, he had (laughs) five Oscar nominations over his career,
0: zero wins. Really? After all those films you just named? It feels like one of those. like Network is really highly regarded. I would have put that... Or 12 Angry Men, what am I talking about? Like That surely... Dog Day Afternoon, yeah, no, he, uh, I guess just
1: every year was beat out by a favorite, and he did get an honorary award in 2005, but yeah, it's one of those interesting directors like Hitchcock, so influential, zero
0: Oscars. Honorary awards are like the participation medals of the Oscars. (laughs) Thanks for playing. (laughs) Sorry, David Lynch. (laughs) Well, Well, David Lynch should have one for Best Director. Should. Mulholland Drive or something like that, you know, geez. Yeah. And so uh, Sidney Lumet hired
1: writer Paul Den to write this film. He's an English-born writer who started as a film critic in the 1930s and in 1950 um, made a film called Seven Days to Noon about a Scotland Yard bomb plot. And he ended up winning an Oscar for that film for um, Motion Picture Story because he had a story credit, not a screenplay credit. And that category is completely gone now. Now they just hand out screenplay Oscars. But back in the day, they would award story. And we did talk about um, Paul Den before. Because, uh, you know, after that Oscar, he went and wrote Goldfinger. And is one of the contributors to that film. He's not the sole writer. But, you know, Goldfinger's a
0: pretty good one to have in your arsenal. Well, I, I have two notes to throw in. Firstly, I think it's pronounced Dane. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, but... Let us know who's right and who's wrong. Jeff's, uh, Jeff's nodding his head in agreement, so I think I think Jeff's on my side with that one. But number two, I, I noted that you said that he was originally a film critic and then became a screenwriter. Does that mean there is uh, still a chance we could make something of ourselves, Cam, and make our parents proud? Uh, no, those chances are long gone. <laughs> right. Long gone. <laughs> yeah, sorry.
1: What What was I thinking? Sorry. We're spiraling into the void here, Scott. Uh... <laughs> And uh, so Paul Dane, uh, I'll correct it there, and I want to apologize for the Goldfinger episode in our back catalog uh, for having that one wrong there then as well. Uh, but he, after Goldfinger, made The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. Uh, so he had some definite experience with Le Carre. That's a great great 60s run. That is, that's tremendous. Right? And in the future would write all of the Planet of the Apes sequels that came off of that first film. Uh, he co-wrote Murder on the Orient Express for Sidney Lumet in 74. And uh, most notably of all, Scott, he's my birthday twin. November 5th, baby. <laughs> <laughs> you, you and Guy
0: Fawkes and Paul Dane. And um, Famke Jansen. I, I don't think that's his biggest claim to fame, I have to say. <laughs> but you you can think it is. That's okay. Yeah, sure. And... Also, this movie was a
1: collaboration between Lumet and cinematographer Freddie Young, who, if you go through his filmography, just one of the all-time great cinematographers. But in the 60s, he's particularly popular for having um, worked on Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago. And so he's like, he's the top. You know, there's no one better than this guy at this point in time. And he actually did You Only Live Twice the same year as this film. And they created a technique of this movie. They wanted to capture kind of the melancholy of the lead character and so they used a process where they muted the colors by pre-fogging the film which was exposing the film to light before they used it and that technique became so popular it's used to this day i mean now it's done digitally but for a long time that technique was uh, very in vogue so the
0: look of this film that sort of drained feel of it is actually this is a cinematic first this is where it comes from yeah and it's interesting when you search
1: you know like making of stuff for this movie there's not really a lot online and it tends to be when they do talk about it like for example on Turner Classic Movies on their entry on this film they only talk about that process and like that's the
0: movie's big achievement I picked up the Indicator Blu-ray release for this and it's actually got quite a few bonus features, but not a lot that are specifically for this film. I think that's probably where the problem is. But there's a there's a there's an interview with the guy who did the camera work for the film um, and a couple of other bits and bobs about the film. Also like a tour of London sites where things were shot, which for me was quite fun because I know a lot of those places and, and lived close to one of the places this film was shot. So that was quite fun but uh yeah not i suppose there's not a lot of living people to talk about this film. Okay, so
1: what was more exciting, finding the locations in this film mm. in your own backyard or
0: Harry Palmer's house? Oh, I've I've really like Chelsea embankment, so it was this film I have to say. I, those boats in the, in the finale of the film, that was literally 10 minutes from my old house.
1: Oh, interesting. Mm.
0: Okay, and this
1: movie had a budget of 1.4 million and I couldn't find box office numbers for it, but it's From what I've read, it was very acclaimed, but it was pretty much overlooked in the marketplace because it was such a crowded spy market. This is 1967. There's a lot of competition, and I think maybe this movie, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes, but maybe a little too muted and quiet for something to stand up against You Only Live Twice and some of the Flint stuff out there.
0: Well, we've gone back and forth on what was the most important spy year in the 60s, whether it's 66, 65, 67. Uh, you know, we did The Naked Runner just before Christmas, 1967. Again, didn't have the best reception, but another spy film in 1967. A big year, but again, also didn't reach audiences because you had this year, you didn't even mention Casino Royale, which, you know, <laughs> for a reason. Why didn't you mention Casino <laughs> Royale, Cam? Come on. It was a big hit, to be fair. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, You Only Live Twice. And that's just, I, I think there's a Matt Helm film here, all sorts of stuff. I think there's a Flint film this year. Mm-hmm. there's a lot going on so I can understand why this sort of got uh, you know, lo- lost in the ocean of spy movies. But yeah, Jeff I'm just curious, from your side of things, not to sort of review the film or anything like that but from your perspective about someone who talks about books more often is this adaptation highly regarded among book fans?
2: Um, I would say in general, people who, who like Call for the Dead the the novel, appreciate the movie because it is pretty faithful to the story um mm. so yeah so i think folks folks who enjoyed the book enjoyed the movie generally okay and the
1: uh, top three for the year number one was the graduate number two was disney's the jungle book and number three was guess who's coming to dinner and as i noted this movie was acclaimed but overlooked but the baftas were part of that acclaim and so it was nominated for best british film best british screenplay British Actor for James Mason, Foreign Actress for Simone Signoret, and British Cinematography, Color. And it lost all of those nominations. Um, A Man for All Seasons, like, swept the BAFTAs that year, which was a huge film at the time. Uh, And the uh, exception, of course, was um, The Best Foreign Actress. That went to Anouk Amy for A Man and a Woman. But, uh, yeah, I mean... I have to believe, had this movie come out in a year where you didn't have a man for all seasons, it might have performed quite well.
0: Well, i was just going to throw it back at you, being a guy who pays attention to award seasons. Not that you were around in 1967, but you know, you know, <laughs> just I... missed it so <laughs> close, <laughs> just by an inch. Um, knowing what came out that year, do you think this deserved to win any of those nominations, or being nominated was about right?
1: I mean, it feels a little too small. To, Mm. I think, walk away the winner. A Man for All Seasons, that did win the Oscar as well. And it's a very, very, very good film. But even by Oscar standards, it also seems kind of small. Sure. So it was kind of an interesting year where I think Hollywood had not quite figured itself out. The late 60s gets kind of weird because they're combating television. And so they're going really big on incredibly long films. Like, a lot of movies, say, like, Dr. Doolittle, that are, like, three hours long for no good reason, and they're just trying to compete. And so you have a lot of, like, kind of British dramas that cross over and do quite well, like A Man for All Seasons or this film, Uh, although this one didn't do as well, but it still made some bit of an impact. Um, And then you just have a lot of spy kind of stuff a lot of blockbuster type material and it's not until the 1970s where suddenly you really get that kind of string of movies like the one Sidney lament worked on mm. that are like the real upper tier best picture
0: winner kind of stuff okay so it, almost like a warm-up for him for the big films he do in the 70s despite 12 angry men and stuff like that that makes sense that makes sense and uh, I, I i do understand the argument this one being lost in the shuffle that year so yeah makes total sense but uh should we get to the review uh, just a couple quick things. I'll mention. Uh, John
1: Lacare was not particularly enamored with this adaptation. Of really? His work. Yeah. He just was like, yeah. Eh. Was was that his exact quote? Yeah, that's an exact quote. And <laughs> um, mm. I'm going to assume that it could have something to do with the fact it comes out after the Spy Who Came in from the Cold. Like that one is such a sensation that it might just be like, oh, this isn't as good as that one. Any insight on that, Jeff?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think. Uh Lakari was always kind of uh prickly and kind of a little bit of a control freak over stuff. I think he had a little bit more involvement with the spy who came in from the cold um you know he was kind of consulted this was completely he didn't have anything to do with it, right and so I think there's a little bit of that at play as well, right um where since he didn't, they made some changes to the story that we could maybe talk about later um that i well he might have said at the time that he didn't like, I think as time goes on, it proved that he actually really did appreciate some of the stuff that, that uh, the screenwriter decided to do.
1: I wonder too, at the time, if it's just kind of also like this Dobbs character, it's not the character that I created. Like there's a little bit of a disconnect even for me, you know, just personally watching it.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that they they couldn't use the, the smiley character um, because he was mm. tied up with the rights for the spy who came in for them. The cold which it, you know if you look at that movie i mean the, smiley is just a teeny little tiny portion of it so it, that might have wrinkled as well and you know smiley was always his most favorite character so seeing anybody kind of mess around with that i think always had his uh, antenna up um and he was always kind of on guard so that might be at play as well to why he wasn't as enthused with that adapt- adaptation
0: yeah well, I'm sorry if it's jumping on something that someone's going to bring up in the actual review shortly, but I am just curious from you, Jeff, in terms of being someone who's read the source material, uh, this character that was George Smiley, is it just a name change or has the character changed in the process of being, you know, rechristened?
2: I would say it's it's mainly just a name change, although the way that Mason plays him, I think, is a little different than most people would generally view smiley i think it's a little more kind of high pitched and emotional and needy than you might might see otherwise um mm-hmm. but for sure it's it's mainly just a name change it really is just smiley i mean everything else is is kind of locked in there so
0: okay well i it, it i mean it answered the question for me in my head about that and it it's actually i think notable that this is the first time we've covered a smiley project Uh, yeah, uh, I was not in Little Drummer Girl. Um, No, it wasn't in Russia House? No, so, yeah. Wow, taking us... Never mind the Mission Impossible films took us three years. (laughs) Took (laughs) us three and a half years to get to George Smiley. Yeah, very true. Mm. Saving the good stuff for uh, later on, of course. Yeah, and just a
1: quick couple other notes. The U.S. cut of this movie is 107 minutes. That's the version I watched, and the U.K. one is 115 and I have to be honest, as I was watching the movie, there were some confusing bits, and I did wonder if those are padded out in the longer cut. I have no way of knowing. Uh, and I looked online for differences, and I just really didn't see anything that insightful.
0: The cut I watched that's on the DVD, or the Blu-ray, I should say, was one hour and 45 minutes. So I think that's the, the British cut you're talking about. No, the U- one forty-five. no, that's the US cut. Oh, interesting. So that must. I wonder if that's just sort of lost to time.
2: Uh, Jeff, anything there? uh no no clue honestly no i don't oh, know okay That's Bit a good a mystery one. maybe it's more more of that bedroom scene
1: it's <laughs> <laughs> hoping not yeah uh, and <laughs> this movie has a stealth bond connection i'll mention as well mm-hmm. which is roy kinnear who plays kind of the shady car rental guy mm-hmm. is the father of rory kinnear who played tanner in the daniel craig
0: bond era that one was delightful to discover I, I mean, I give the guy props for, I think, one of the best moments in the film, which I'm sure we'll get to, but also I was curious if that's the guy that gets thrown off the side into the Thames, uh, because that is one of the best body doubles I've ever seen in my life. How did they do that? It's great. I That's, that's the scene I've gone back to about four times since watching the film earlier today, just rewatch that body drop and the splat of the mud from the Thames. It's <laughs> tremendous. If you're going to watch any moment from this film, watch Roy Kinnear getting offed. <laughs> It really is incredible, and I am a
1: huge fan of watching dummies get hurled out of buildings or what, <laughs> mm-hmm. whatnot, but like this one, I was like,
0: I don't know how they did this, but it looks incredible. That's uh, that's that's the magic for you. That's the magic, but I, I think it's time we uh, stick our Trilby hats on and talk about The Deadly Affair. Jeff, you are our resident expert on the subject. You've spoken about this film. You've watched it. You've read the book. You've consumed it. You understand the film. Tell us. What you think of it in the year twenty twenty
2: four? Uh I I like it. You know, I don't. Is it one that I'm gonna like go back to all the time and watch? No, but I, I enjoyed it. I thought, you know, it's it's got some interesting things going on there. You know, um, and I think it, if you're a fan of Lakari and Smiley, you're gonna enjoy this this movie because um, I think they are pretty faithful to to. The spirit of the book and you know i think there's certain things that i i really did like i liked the muted tones i think that was really interesting you know cam you talked about that and and how they were really trying something new there and it, from re- listening i don't know if you uh scott listened to the commentary on the dvd but they um talk about how matter Lumet- um came from black and white right i mean he was used to black and white and so he wanted this movie to be black and white but there was no way they were going to do that right cuz at 67 i mean it's like kiss of death kind of thing for black and white movies and so mm. they went with this idea to kind of mute things down and it fits with the story you know i mean that it really i mean for me i don't live in london i've only visited but that kind of muted feel i you you love that to see that on screen right i, I don't know every day Every day it's like that. It's raining. We're sad and depressed. It's great. (laughs) See? Exactly.
1: I mean, I was just in London visiting Scott, and when I'm watching this movie, it's like, I'm just
2: taking a tour of Scott's neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think they really did do a good job. I mean, you know, the whole movie starts out, right, at uh, St. James Park. Mm -hmm. um, And a location that you still got. Like, I was there in February and walked across that bridge, right? You know, and it's it's, that captures that. And Guess what when we were there it was just kind of the same feel you know it it did have that kind of muted feel for whatever reason in february so um i i thought all of the location stuff in london was amazing and you know the the way they filmed that um where you're not getting i maybe they used it a couple of time but you know the, no real like rear screen projection going on they're in there with a the camera getting those shots uh I, at least and you tell me if i i've got that wrong but it certainly looked like that was what was they were doing
0: it looked real to me. I mean, the locations mm-hmm. weren't necessarily where they said they were, but it's it looked great. I mean, seeing... Uh, you know, just outside London, Sunbury and stuff like Barnes and uh, Chelsea Embankment, Battersea was in there, Wandsworth. Great to see my old haunts. And, uh, you know, it, it, I know what you mean. And also on Cam's trip, he didn't mention this, but we did also walk in St. James's Park. But the uh, I think the bridge we we're talking about was closed due to a marathon that was on at the same sort of time. So we uh, couldn't get the full tour of St. James's Park, but we have been there together. Oh, oh, I didn't even connect that. That's where. Okay, cool. That That's where we were walking after we did the uh, the Churchill War Rooms. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. There you go. It, the, your, your London tour was better than you said it was. <laughs> did I say I, it was bad? I deserve a five-star review on Yelp. Okay. <laughs> TripAdvisor. That's it. That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Well, and it made I loved how they filmed. I loved how they filmed it there too, because like it's right by. It's like the corridors of power. They're doing that one little scene. They obviously would walk right from there, you know. Like when I when we stayed in London, we were staying in this Airbnb where I could look out and see where the old MI six headquarters used to be. You know, I mean, so like all of those kind of locations mm. are right there, and so they kind of played right into that, which was fun.
0: No, I mean, in terms of capturing the spirit of the time, I, I even think down to the details of, you know, the office stuff when they're just talking in the office, having a coffee when they came in really early, when the the, the guy offs himself very early on the film. That just feels like an office in London in the 1960s, not that I was there, but I've seen a lot of recreations in a lot of films and documentaries. That feels like that sort of spy life, the reality of it all, that sort of grainy, gritty stuff that we saw in things like the Ipcris file. Mm. It's no glamour.
1: No, no, it's a very grounded, real spy world versus uh, some of the glossier
0: stuff we tackle on the show. No, exactly. So it it sounds like Jeff, you're a fan of the film, which is good to hear. I'm gonna throw it over to Cam. What did you think?
1: I really enjoyed this one, and I think my track record with Lacare on the show has been not great. <laughs> I uh, the drummer girl, little drummer girl, film was just not very good, and I didn't really connect to the Russia house very well. No, uh, I really enjoyed this one. I liked kind of the blending of the intrigue, which. I just thought was very involving and I liked how small scale it was. It was such a small little event, this job interview that then turned into a suicide and the way it kind of like got messier and messier. I just found myself so drawn into that, but I liked the kind of the combination of kind of the business of espionage with the personal Mm -hmm. and the home life of Smiley or Dobbs, I guess Dobbs is the proper name in this film. Um, I liked the way that it kind of like... These two stories working in unison just ratcheted up the tension throughout. Like, I could feel the character being put through the ringer. And so, like, there's so much fun to this movie, just watching, like, the tension build and these relationships. But also just, like, so many unforgettable supporting characters in this movie that I had so much fun hanging out with. This is much more of a um, hangout movie than some of the other Le films I've seen and it just felt to me like a movie that it's beautiful to look at. I had fun walking around with these characters, trying to solve a mystery, even if I didn't understand the mystery at certain points. Um, my one issue was like, I think like there is a twist to this movie that I was not aware was a twist <laughs> because it was so, so telegraphed that I was like, well, is this a mystery? What are we trying to figure out guys? Uh, so like aspects like that didn't necessarily wow me ultimately. Like, I don't know this is going to go as like, you know the premier Lacare adaptation in my life, but it was a movie I really did enjoy watching.
0: It's I'm I am glad that I have uh, Jeff on the show. To, <laughs> Thanks, to, Scott. To be a to, well, to be on your 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 team, Cam. Uh I have to say because this one, I. uh mm. It didn't quite work for me, I have to say. It, it isn't without its moments of brilliance, I think. You know, there's some wonderful things I enjoyed. I, I mentioned Roy Kinnear. I think some of the characters in this film are deliciously interesting that I want to see more of. The Inspector I think was great. I can't remember the actor's name. But there's a lot to enjoy. Like The pub scene just felt like a British pub, like a working class <laughs> pub. That felt bang on. They nailed that. Um I actually quite like the Quincy Jones jazz score. It's weird, but it's like fun. Uh but I you know and and also you know Cam and I are, are in a sort of cut-cold relationship ourselves. He likes to make me watch. So uh I I understood what Dobbs was going through in this film. I felt for him. But uh, there I had so many like it's too long. It's too slow. It's too ploddy. And I hear everyone saying that's what this type of film is. And I understand it. But maybe this type of film just isn't for me. And sometimes I watch these films and they do rise above. I really enjoyed The Russia House. It actually worked for me, unlike yourself, Cam. Yeah. And so it's not like I am adverse to these kinds of films. But I just found that this plot was overly confusing at times the pace just drops off at one point and you're not really doesn't really ever revive until like the dying two minutes of the film when they're down by chelsea embankment and i think you know you could argue that the the smattering of interesting characters throughout could sort of wake you up and keep you going throughout which it did a little bit it's you know hour and 45 minute film but uh, as you said it's 1967 there are much more interesting and exciting films coming out this year. No, not just Bond, there are other stuff happening too. You know, you stick a, a Matt Helm film on. It could be bad, but I'm not disinterested in it. It's more laughable, perhaps at times. This I was just sort of staring at, bleary eyed. <laughs> I mean, I I changed the title to The Sleepy Affair. <laughs> and so, you know, there are bits that work for me there are bits that didn't i much like all films i had my problems with it and i'm sure we'll talk about it but unlike the two of you this is uh this is not a winner for me in contrast to the russia house what did you appreciate more about that one i i cared about the love story of the russia house
1: i i felt that that really worked for me that's really interesting because that was one of my big
0: issues with russia house was i didn't connect with that at all I I thought that they have really good chemistry, Michelle Pfeiffer and Sean Connery. It's hard for them not to have chemistry in this film. Whereas your lead here is... I I made a cuckold joke. And that is actually probably an element that we'll get into. He is... A classic cuckold. I'm not using that sort of internet slang that people use now. He is in that relationship. His wife is sleeping around and using it as a power over him. And he seems to draw some sort of pleasure from that scenario because it it seems to be like an arrangement that they have. And that's not necessarily a detriment to a person. That's your preference. I understand that completely. But he is your protagonist. He is your lead. You're meant to be riding, shouting for him to solve the puzzle and win the day. And grab the lady and, you know, right off into the sunset. It's not a Western, but you know what I mean. And I see him in this film as a meek man who doesn't like his life. And all he has is solving this crime. And that that's more like a noir, you know, pulp thriller from the 30s, <laughs> which is not my thing. That's kind of what I responded to, actually,
1: was... And I had a question, actually, for Jeff, because uh, he's obviously the master at Le Carre stuff here on this podcast. The older man, younger woman trope—that's also in Russia House. Is that something he tackles consistently in his work, or are these just kind of like standalone
2: examples? Yeah, I mean, I in this case in the book, I don't know that there's this big of a age gap in in Call for the Dead. Um, mm. It's it's not that's new to the the movie adaption um definitely there's other um later works where there are some of these kind of weird wonky age gap things going on but in this case that was kind of more uh part of the movie versus something from the book oh that's interesting. which personally i it that didn't really work for me i mean it was like wow she looks like she's like just uh graduated from high school he looks like he's like you know ready for retirement this is really kind of creepy <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, there's a there's a moment where he says well, she's begging him to sort of show any passion for their relationship. And, and she says, just throw me out. You know, and he said, oh, that didn't work for us last time. Remember when we were in Stockholm? And I'm like, how long could you two have been dating? <laughs> <laughs> Should I be making a phone call to the public <laughs> services right now? Because I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh
1: I don't know. Like to me it felt like the more realistic outcome to this sort of relationship. Whereas with Russia House it's like this like sweeping romance and I'm like, come on. Whereas in this case, I buy that this older guy is just like, I I can't do this. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's breaking me.
0: I've got no energy
1: left. Help.
0: Help. I'm wondering why Cam is seeing himself more in Dobbs than he did in Sean Connery and Russia House. I'm just putting the question out there, I'm just saying. I aspire to be Dobbs at this point. (laughs) <laughs> well you know i i know i'm not quite as on board with it as you two are but let's talk about things that we liked in there i i've definitely got stuff to mention but jeff i'll go to you first something you really like about this
2: film um i loved the the relationship between um uh, dobbs and uh the inspector i thought those two were great you know like you've got uh dobbs is kind of like this spock character Mandel is like uh, Do- Dr. McCoy, you know, to go Star Trek on you. Nice. Um, so they just have this kind of like, you know, lovable relationship that I really appreciated. And, and the inspector, the actor that plays him is so good. He's like he, this is not a laugh a minute kind of movie. Uh, just, you know, FYI for anybody listening. Um, but he manages to wring some of the best kind of laughs out of, out of you and as you're watching him. Just through some really nice, subtle stuff.
1: It's a very, like, the Mendel character is such, like, a quirky character that, like, he could have been the star of his own film. And this movie does a great job of creating, like, little worlds for all the people we meet in the film. And when you see his house and there's just the animals everywhere, it's just, like, there's a whole story there just waiting to be told. And I I did enjoy that, uh, you know, you also have the um, Applebee character who also joins them. And I had it written down as um, the brain, the brawn, and the resources. And I like the way these three kind of all bounce off each other. I wish we'd had a little more with Appleby because I didn't really have a good sense as to who he is as an individual. Whereas Mendel,
0: like, I knew that guy by the end of the movie. Just speaking towards Inspector Mendel, the actor himself, Harry Andrews, has actually got a ton of spy connections if, if no one's looked him up yet. Earliest one I can find is Ice Cold in Alex, but he has a real run of them in the 60s. He starts off in Modesty Blaze in 66. He does this in 67. He then comes back in Danger Route later this year in 67. I think Dandy Naspik is also a spy film. That's 68. Uh, there are a couple more. There's Destiny of a Spy, 69. And there is one more that jumped out to me when I was just looking for it. I'm going back to it. Yes, of course, he is the titular Macintosh man in The Macintosh Man. Oh, my God. Was he really? Mm -hmm. With James Mason. Oh, wow.
1: Wow, wow, wow. Uh, He has just like a great face. And, you know, so many of these spy films are being shot in Britain at that point in time, obviously. And so, like, if you're looking for a unique character actor to plug into these worlds, like, you can't do better than this guy.
0: Sorry, what are you trying to say about Britain? <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Cam doesn't want that fire. All right.
1: Uh, but Cam, over to you. Something you liked. Um, I mean, I was going to say like the three of them bouncing off each other was a big part of the appeal to me because like, I think if this movie had been a little more just focused on James Mason as a solo act. I don't know that it would have sustained my attention as much. It was the fact they kept mixing up the energies and having scenes of, you know, Dobbs and Mendel together and then bring in, you know, Applebee and have the three of them together. And they would kind of like split them off and always kept my attention because of that. But like I mentioned the other, you know, supporting characters. I thought um, Sig- uh, Simone Signoret was like incredible as uh, Elsa Fennan, the uh, widow of the guy we see, you know, who commits suicide off the top of the movie. Like, this is a character who's crucial to the film, obviously, but, like, has a monologue where she just, like, talks about, you know, losing someone and talks about her time in the concentration camps. That's just, like, like, give this woman an Oscar nomination. She's incredible. Just, you know, I was talking about characters who create these whole worlds unto themselves. The life of Elsa is just a fascinating story. And I found every time you paired her and James Mason together, it just crackled. And the movie is just so good at that. You know, you mentioned um, Roy Kinnear. Just little bit parts that show up. You know, you have the guy that plays Goldie, you know, who's kind of this mystery assailant who's attacking people. And it's like, Mm -hmm. everyone is perfectly cast. And I just found, if you had cast, say, like more generic types in this movie, I might be sitting where you are, Scott, where I'd be going like, "Eh, this was a bit of a slog for me to get through. The fact that every, you know, character who kind of popped up was interesting to me and was played by someone that kind of popped off the screen just really infused it with a lot of energy
0: i I would agree i mean you you look at uh, another one you didn't mention is lynn redgrave the the great lynn redgrave as virgin bumpus which is my favorite name (laughs) (laughs) yes she's like the nepo baby prop person
2: (laughs) Mm,
1: yeah yeah, working on the Macbeth um, uh, play, I-, I thought that was like a very quirky, fun little addition. And I'm always, when we tackle spy movies, looking for things I haven't seen mm-hmm. because so many of them, you know, you see similar tropes or similar character types or whatever. I haven't seen a um, Virgin Bumpus before. Well, that, but also like a spy movie with like a sequence set around Macbeth. No. And having like a big theatrical ending contrasting the events with, you know, what's going on in a play of Edward the Second. Like it's, Things like that, that kind of make me sit forward and go like, I I haven't seen anything like this. I can look at the finale and be like, oh, you know, I've seen kind of like the man who knew too much, the way you have the scene in the Royal Albert Hall. There's that similar kind of suspense, but this felt
0: much more like theatrical in a way that I just found really involving. Well, I had a note as like a final question at the end of the show to ask you, but you brought up Shakespeare and, you know, what people don't necessarily know about Cam is he uh, in another life was uh, William Shakespeare. True. Yeah. Uh no, but he is a massive Shakespeare buff. He loves Shakespeare. When he was in England with with me recently, we went to the Globe Theatre to go see a production of uh, I believe it was Macbeth. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, to this film, uh, it was a, a great night out. But I I actually had more of a, a structural question, and I and Jeff can jump in on this one too. Like what the source material did with this, because I'm I'm curious as to is having Macbeth and Edward the in this thematically involved or is it more just the fact that the rsc were available to do edward ii i mean david warner on the stage funnily enough at the start doing the uh the opening speech but uh the late great david warner but you know just to you cam is there any symbolic connection here or is that more just that's the ones they picked i mean macbeth you know you have a protagonist who's undone by
1: um insecurity and like a need for power um so i mean i think that's just like a kind of a universal concept you can apply even to the spy world
0: also the witch the bubble bubble toil and trouble thing is a good opener everyone knows that
2: well and you have what macbeth and banquo kind of uh betrayal by friends kind of a thing going on so that kind of plays in here
1: yeah yeah totally and so like i think that stuff does edward the second i honestly don't know very well i've never uh read the play or seen it so uh, i can't
0: comment on that one Okay, well, let us know, folks, if there's a connection there. But over to you, Jeff. Is, there, is, is it in the books that way,
2: or is that something you've, you picked up on? I mean, definitely the theater scene is in the books. I don't know that they, I'm trying to remember if they call out which specific productions are in there, but it's, I mean, it's obviously you don't get a sense of what is going on on stage compared to like this, where you, you're like getting a mini uh, theatrical production <laughs> dropped in the middle of the, of the, the movie there. Well, looking up on the notes of this film,
0: they they asked the RSC who were staying in that theatre before they had the Globe in London. They they had that at Haymarket Theatre, I believe it was. It was, was their home in London, and they asked them to just put a play on, which ended up being the Second, which is something they had done recently, so they had the costumes available. Mm. That's partly why it's in the film from my research, but I wondered if they wrote it in also thematically. We'll find out. Maybe I'll do some digging after this, but people let us know, spyhardspod at gmail.com. Drop us an email if you are a big shakespeare buff and you know
2: potentially why it's in the film well and edward ii wasn't written by shakespeare it was by christopher marlowe so yeah that's the other part yeah
0: so. oh i didn't know that so the rfc did something that wasn't shakespeare right
1: yeah it's done through the shakespearean theater but
0: yeah marlowe play is that one of the shakespeare offshoot people that like worked with him or did stuff like him
2: they they were kind of like yeah they were kind of like uh Rivals a little bit. Marlowe was pretty well known at the time, and when Shakespeare and him were kind of going head to head, from what I remember.
0: Okay, okay. Well, I've been corrected, but if even if you're if you're a Shakespeare buff or a Marlowe buff, just let us know. Um, I had a lot of like little likes because kind of my favorites have so more or less been tackled already. I liked the relationships, and I and I liked the sort of the London scenery which you mentioned. I I loved seeing London it's sort of a time capsule of the 1960s and and not the glitz and glam side of London. We're not like Intrafalga Square or, you know, something like that or Piccadilly Circus with the lights. It's more just the back roads of Sunbury, which is just a sleepy little town on the outskirts of London. Nice to see because I've I've been there. Um, We mentioned the side characters. I mentioned the score. I was a big fan of the sort of artsy title sequence. It's trying to be kind of interesting to start off with the different colors and like moving through the scene that we eventually get later in the film. Uh, just an interesting way of starting the film. I think it's a lost art having a sort of title card, title scenes at the beginning of films instead of having credits at the end now. Yeah, I, I miss them.
1: And these ones, I liked how modest they were, but they did a really good job at kind of capturing that bleak mood that carries over the rest of the film and uh, pairs very well with the kind of that cinematography we talked about that's so effective. And the the Quincy Jones score. Yeah, uh, it's a little poppy at times, which I thought was actually kind of interesting for a movie like this. Because I think the the unimaginative approach would be just have a very kind of like doom and gloom kind of score over these proceedings. Mm -hmm. And I liked that they were often using stuff that was quite playful.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The thing about the title cards, too, that I love is at the end, right? You get that. There's something about a movie. They throw up the end at the very end and it cuts to black. I mean, like for me, I love that. That's just like it something about that now when you got to sit through 12 minutes of credits right
0: it just feels right no post-credits teaser you have to wait for
2: yeah <laughs> oh
0: is that is that when like uh what's the post-credits scene for this one is it is it data coming back out of the water <laughs> that's a pretty good it's the hand the hand just like rising up out of the muck and yeah. grabbing hold of like the dock or or it's the inspector sitting up oh that too yeah actually that's my happy ending i was really sad that he is uh he is spoilers killed at the end of the film also very unceremoniously yeah you
1: care about that guy yeah. when he gets shot the first time you're like oh no <laughs> and then when he gets shot the second <laughs> double time like, oh yeah. yeah and it's it's interesting how like a movie like this it, it's not like a depressing film to sit through you know some movies are very moody but i think it has a real kind of like air of melancholy as you know they hoped. And I think like that death just feels so sad and just kind of like the fact it's never acknowledged afterwards, I thought was actually kind of appropriate.
0: Mm-hmm. And and like you speak about the characters, there are defined characters. You speak of the inspector. We go to his house very briefly and he has like a menagerie of birds and other animals in his house. Bizarre choice, but it feels like something that genuinely would happen. It was like a real human being with quirks and everything. Who takes care of those animals? What now? <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> Uh, man.
0: I'll go, uh, that's a good question.
2: He's got a niece, I'm sure. Hopefully.
1: Hopefully. Mm. I don't think Dobbs seemed in any hurry to (laughs) go and look after those animals. (laughs) He's out of the
2: country. He's left. Yeah. Right? Skedaddle. No, but good news for you. I just got some good news in the book. He lives. So. Oh. Oh,
1: interesting. Now, I mean... It's interesting that they made the choice then to kill him. I wonder what their uh, thought process was there. Probably there wasn't going to be a sequel.
2: So, you know, (laughs) go for it. Uh, Yeah. Leave the bodies on Mm -hmm. the floor.
0: It it, it is a shock, I suppose. Like you don't want it to happen. I totally get it. Uh, The only other thing I had to mention is actually just James Mason's performance. I think we should just take a second to sort of uh, applaud. Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily a fan of some of the choices he makes through the film. The ending, for instance, he goes back to his wife slash girlfriend, I can't remember what the relationship is, overseas, where she has literally left him for the person who turns out to be his enemy. I, I'm not too sure how you bring that back. I, I, I think they probably need some couples counseling at the very least. Yeah, uh, it's very clear that there is
1: some need that is being fulfilled having them together. Mm. they are drawn to each other and maybe that's not a good thing but it is a thing and i think that makes it that much more compelling to watch because for whatever reason these two crazy kids cannot separate and just watching kind of the fireworks and the shifting dynamics i always found interesting
0: and much like our relationship too ken exactly yes
2: well i think you know supporting actor to mason's mustache as well you know we gotta give some credit there
0: Oh, it's a good one. It's a good mustache. Great mustache. Uh, just in terms of um, his performance, though. I mean, I, I've seen James Mason. James Mason has the wildest I think, every time he's appeared on the show. Even films that didn't make the list, like the Macintosh Man. He is... Funny that comes up again. He is just astounding to watch and he understands the world that he's in a lot of the time and he's able to feel quite grounded and and real. Like that psychotic MP in the Macintosh Man all the way through to a villainous baddie in North by Northwest. Or uh, the movie The Five Fingers, which was
1: the last James Mason movie I think we tackled and that made the knock list for us. And he was incredible in that. There's something about espionage films that really just suits his acting style uh he i think he likes to go quite big at times yeah yeah he can be very restrained but then he'll have his big moments like there's a emotional reaction he has when he finds out that his wife has been seeing dieter and it's a real like gasp and like clutch the uh, you know
0: the arm of the sofa kind of moment but it definitely made me sit forward to be fair at that moment i was more worried about the plates of cheese and crackers that she dropped
2: <laughs> what a waste mm. I can't remember. Did you guys talk about how James Mason saved Buster Keaton's movies? Did you have you, did you talk about that in the general? I don't remember. I, I, I'm assuming not, so go for it. He bought Buster Keaton's house and as they were doing renovations they knocked down a wall and found his old projection booth that had all of his movies that were just had been lost, and so they transferred them over wow. and that was how they were all saved. So wow. Go
0: James Mason.
2: I am right. I, this is Mason Hards now. I've, I've renamed it. <laughs> Spy Hards icon. He's not a villain. He's, a, he's the savior of Buster Keaton, so.
1: We interrupt this program to bring you a special report.
2: Red Alert Spy
0: Hards, we are shaking things up over on the Patreon page. That's right, we
1: are launching an exclusive new show where we tackle the exploits of the small screen's greatest secret agents, like Jack Bauer, George Smiley, and beyond. And
0: don't forget every month you also get two Agents in the Field episodes where we decode the adventures of your favorite spy actors in their biggest non-spy movies. But Cab, tell the people what we have coming up
1: next. Scott, for our first OSS episode, we are gonna take a look at the 1989 Ian Fleming biopic, Goldeneye, starring Charles Dance.
0: Will it be 00, whoa, or 00, no? So don't get left out in the cold, help, support your favourite spy movie podcast and join the circus at patreon.com spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, let's get back to the spy jinx. Okay folks, let's look at dislikes. There are still things I want to
2: talk about, but Jeff, we're going to use something you didn't like about The Deadly Affair um for me and i know you said you kind of uh appreciated it i don't know the score was just a little jarring to me um it just didn't quite fit the vibe of of the movie i thought so that was one thing that you know they they listened to separately i loved it right like if i'm not watching the film Mm -hmm. i thought it was really great but like paired with the movie it was like there were two separate vibes going on here and i didn't feel like they meshed together very well so that was kind of one of the one of the things that i was less than impressed with in the movie it is an interesting choice to make this like kind of british restrained spy
1: film and then bring quincy jones over to score it <laughs> uh it's it's a real like <laughs> best of both worlds situation i guess it just de- depends on whether that ultimate flavor appeals to you or not i thought it was i guess it's not going to go down as one of my all-time favorite spy movie scores but i at least was like oh that's interesting and there was a movie, Scott, was it the last Matt Helm one, where it was like a score that was just like a nightmare, and it was similar era, and it was like a very poppy, playful score, but it was just like nails on a blackboard. I think it was The Wrecking Crew, and- Wasn't it The Ambushes, the third one? It's one of the later ones, but like, to me, that is like going with something poppy that just drives me crazy, whereas this one I thought was a little more, it was endearing.
0: I'm, I'm on board for it. Um. I did find it quite interesting that there is basically a theme that is created for the film whenever uh, James Mason's character is being downtrodden by his wife. Mm, Yeah. There's like a particular like jazzy tune that plays, which is not really what you would score those sort of moments of your relationship to. You're having a massive row and it's like... (laughs) It's like, hmm. That's uh, not not the choice
1: I'd make. Maybe it's a bit of a business as usual. Like that's just their soundtrack because it's always happening.
0: Yeah, like, that's the record that's always playing in their room, basically.
1: And records just go round and around and around, and they never, you know, yeah. it, it rhymes. Until there's a record
0: scratch.
2: They do even do that in there one time, so.
0: they And it's perfectly <laughs> timed. Like, she turns around and goes to sleep and smacks it down, and, and then the record goes, <laughs> and it's like, and he leaves the room. Well played. Very well played. <laughs> uh, Cam, a, a dislike from you? Okay, so I
1: mentioned this up front. There's a mystery involving the Dieter character, played by Maximilian Schell. Mm-hmm. And it just, they are kind of like dropping this name Zontag throughout the film. Who could be Zontag? Who could be Zontag? And there's really only one individual it could be. And I was- Who's not English. Who's not English. And (laughs) they mentioned, you know, he's from, uh, I believe, Austria. And you're like, well, Zontag, you know, the way they're pronouncing it, you're like, okay, I I feel like it's this guy. And so I was waiting for kind of like a swerve Mm. or something. and boy did it never come they just gave me the obvious and I think it might work for me if I just had a better sense of like or not a better sense but just like more investment in the relationship between the two men um there is clearly something going they're very very close and I began to wonder if it was almost bordering on something romantic I got that impression too the scene on the couch, right? Where they have like yeah. their hands around each other kind of thing. And it's the, like... the embrace is very tender.
0: Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, it, this is actually an interesting moment to bring up uh, Paul Dane. The writer uh, was a homosexual man. Right. Um, which, and there's, there's lots of, there's strange moments of like almost homophobia in this movie, uh, casual homophobia. We can call it that, but it, you know, it's being written by a gay man, which is this interesting duality that exists in this film. But yeah, there is tender elements between James Mason and and the Dieter character that you you do genuinely feel like they have, have had times together. And you have
1: like the revelation that Dieter has been seeing Anne, and the uh, response to that is just absolute horror. And then you also have the scene when they're at the um the theater, and he realizes that um that uh, Dieter is Zontag. And, like, runs out and is throwing up in the sink. To me, that shows, like, a level of emotional investment that goes beyond just, that's my old friend from war or something like that. Like, there's a a closeness there and there's a horror to that revelation that I can accept going through the character of Dobbs, but I just wish I felt more of that relationship on screen.
0: Yeah.
2: I think their first introdu- introduction, they just, like, it. It's it's so almost over the top kind of like the way that they play it mm. for, for whatever reason, like it's like so over as far as they're so excited to see Dieter and they're just like kind of bouncing around off of each other. It's like they're almost giddy mm. um, in a way that didn't feel natural compared to everything else that we've kind of seen in the, in the movie, right? It's this kind of kitchen sink drama almost. And yet here there's just like, it's over the top. And so I think for me, that was what made that relationship between Dobbs and Dieter hard to kind of jibe together. I mean, there definitely is some kind of uh, odd vibes going on between them. And that certainly does come through in the book as well, um, where, you know, Smiley and Dieter have this kind of strange kind of relationship as far as deep, deeply caring about each other Mm -hmm. in a way that is maybe not purely on a, you know, agent and agent runner kind of level. But it's not like something that's ever dived into in the novel either but um yeah there's just some weird dynamics going on there
0: and that's not to say that that there's anything particularly peculiar about two men being you know very caring about one another but it i think jeff's bang on there that it does stand out from what's happening around the film until the point of that scene you've never seen james mason go above a four no even when his wife is basically like tearing him a new one he is just like i'm so sorry okay Mm." but he sees Dita, he's like he's jumping into his arms hello been a while talking about old code language and stuff and when they were spies together and it it just stands out it just stands out yeah
1: and i mean he's much more intimate in scenes with um dieter than he is with Anne, which mm-hmm. i thought
0: was also notable which yeah you know, maybe there's some coding going on here at least in the film version i don't know necessarily about the book itself but mm. yeah a lot of context a lot of sort of uh Interesting thing to dig into from different points of view in this film. But yeah, overall, I, I did think that that whole reveal was a, a mile off. I watched this the first time round with my wife and she uh, said, oh, did you know it was him when it was revealed? And I was like, yeah. She goes, oh, yeah, I figured it out a while ago. And she is not someone who watches these films. So if she gets it. It seems so obvious that
1: I was surprised that they played it as such a reveal. mm. Like it could be a reveal to the character, but it seems like the kind of thing that like the audience probably has figured it out, so you might as well set it up at a certain point earlier and build the tension of moving up to the moment where they actually discover each other versus like playing it as a surprise on the audience.
0: Well, this is sometimes a problem you get with book adaptations is something that makes complete sense when you're doing it it's like a, a character's POV and you're only hearing their thoughts and their conversations is different when you put that on a screen because your audience can think ahead, whereas in the book you're generally sort of going with where your protagonist is going. Um, so maybe that's just something that was lost in translation.
2: Well, the other thing is that the, the whole subplot of Dieter and Anne together isn't in the book. So that was uh, something that was added in. Oh. Um, and um, I think maybe what they were going for, right, is the idea that he's so blinded by this affair that he learns about before he learns that Dieter is actually this uh spy master that's there um is what really pushes him over the edge um just cuz then he's realizing the depths that he has gone to you know he's obviously played Anne, you know and as a way of kind of blinding dobbs right and so i think maybe that was kind of what they were going for unfortunately i think you're right i mean it's just you know the list of suspects is pretty thin on the ground so it's not like we're going to be that shocked over who who it turns out to be but um i will say that that change i think was for the better for the novel mm-hmm. um since they did beef up um anne's role you don't really see her in the book um she's gone she's already left mm. him um and so oh, okay yeah so having her hair there and this betrayal um i think i thought it worked and then i think the interesting thing is you see that similar dynamic. Lacare actually kind of steals for a later book um which is kind of interesting and not that he, i think he'd acknowledge that or say that that's what he did but it's very clear that we see that subplot reappear later um in another one of his novels so
0: i will jump in with my dislike that i haven't really spoken too much about and it's actually Bouncing perfectly off of what Jeff just said there, because you said it, it worked for you in terms of having that Anne character being the sort of foil for James Mason, having his number basically, in a way, and also sort of bouncing off the Dita point is I just think this whole subplot of his of James Mason's failed marriage, I think they're married, I can't remember, uh, failed relationship, let's just put it that way, uh, is a real distraction from the plot. I know it adds a, a layer of shame. And there's a lot of shame in this film, a lot of uh, him feeling like he has absolutely nothing. There's a pretty marvellous discussion of uh, of when Anna tells him, uh, you know, you've always treated me with like kid gloves and your and your job was such fire. And I kind of want you to do it the other way around. And that's an interesting relationship dynamic to get into. But I think it muddies the water of what is... It should be a spy plot, and they're focusing on that. And and the fact that their reveal is not even worth the hour and forty five minute runtime anyway. I'd almost rather they spent more time coming up with some more, like some more changes to the plot to make it more twisty, and then you get to the reveal at the end, or make it a different reveal. I don't know, but that whole you know, there's twenty minutes maybe in this film of them just together, James Mason and his partner, and it does add a richness to the character. It does add a few extra layers and makes him more human. I understand that, but I just found it a distraction. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, to me, it was that kind of the clash
1: of kind of the personal and the impersonal mm. that made it more involving for me. Uh, sometimes, I mean, it's tough because I'm talking about, like, some of the other drier spy films, but, like, if you don't have kind of a human element, I sometimes I run the risk of checking out. Like, if it feels a yeah. little too mechanical or cold, and I liked that there was kind of this this kind of passion going on in James Mason's house that stood in contrast to kind of the the more methodical kind of breaking down of the
0: conspiracy. Sure. I, I, I do obviously, I understand your point of view on it too. Just for me, it, it just felt to sort of detract from any tension I was feeling from the film when we would go back to just hearing about their relationship. Like when she turns up at his hospital bed after he was attacked by the pub and there's this like, you know, would it be okay if I kiss you? And he goes, no. I just think... Uh, why are you saying that to your wife? Maybe I just can't put my head into that headspace. You know, having a wife personally, I I don't know how you could be that way with someone you love and he clearly loves her, uh, but that's a complicated human thing. So maybe that is interesting. and It just doesn't work for me. I completely get it if you like it. But um, I think before we get to the knock list, I'm just going to throw it out for final notes, final points, final questions. So Jeff, over to you. Is there something you want to bring up you haven't mentioned yet?
2: Um, well, you know, one of my, I didn't get to say one of the things I disliked was that Dobbs shows up to the play late. Like what is What kind of jerk is it? I mean, that's like, if you want to make a jerk case, like, geez, what you know, it's already started, he's showing up late. Come on. And it's a surveillance. What's he doing? <laughs> he's a bad spy. <laughs> yeah. Never show up late to like, yeah, a play or live performance. It drives people crazy. <laughs> but, you know, I did, I think that for me, the theater performance stuff, um, it just there was too much of it right i mean it went on too long mm-hmm. as far as i could you know It was like well we paid it you know i could just you know you hear that producer like i paid him we're gonna see it put it on the screen <laughs> you know kind of a thing going on there um so i just thought that was a little little awkward but um and you know th- that part i didn't like i did love like the whole sequence in the bar um was just great when uh uh uh, Inspector Mendel goes on like that, just beat down of Scar, <laughs> and then there's the other cops there. They're just like nothing to see here, you know just just walk away. You know, all day. I mean, that's like <laughs> how I in- I imagine every night at a pub in London going. Uh, you know, that's basically it, right? I mean, that's that's how it is.
0: I I, uh, I I can only imagine. So I mean, it it gives me vibes of like classic British cop shows, like you know The Bill, or going further back like Dixon Dixon and Doc Green. Um, very british shows here i'm sorry folks for everyone who's not in the uk but uh yeah that sort of um old school copper right yeah like i i did love that sequence of him confronting
1: and and dragging um scar out into the alley like that was just it's like this movie is filled with scenes like that that just kind of like popped for me and uh i will say though that i did have an issue that half the time when scar was talking i couldn't understand
0: what he was saying (laughs) Oh really, I found that accent to be truly challenging, oh okay, that's that sort of divide there i I got that completely, so that must just mm. be a uh an Atlantic issue yeah well i I'll just add about you know Roy Kinnear, I think just i i I gleaned about him earlier i I praised him, but I think he is some of the most fun bits in the film come from him, his polyamorous relationship with his two wives, a little bit of uh, bigamy going on there, very interesting to be happening in the nineteen sixties London, and also just like seeing his daughter. Yeah, uh, where's your dad? Oh, he's at the pub with me, mum. Oh, uh, which uh, uh, which of your mums or uh, whatever it was? Like finding out how casual she was about having two mums was actually very forward thinking. Yeah, a lot of uh, kind of like little worlds unto
1: themselves in this movie. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, I also I can't, uh, you know, it's not a very chasey kind of a movie. You know, this is not an action movie. But the mm-hmm. one chase sequence we do get, where uh, Mandela's chasing after uh, Elsa Fennin I thought that was great, you know. I mean just like the way it was edited and cut together and the locations that they used. Again, I just thought that was that one really worked for me.
0: It's uh there's a little bonus feature on the indicator Blu-ray where they explain how that shot was done through uh Victoria Bus Station and uh they shot it whilst the cameraman was in a wheelchair. So they're sort of shooting slightly just below the hip upwards uh getting that tracking shot. And I think it was uh, I think it was either the cinematographer or the Sydney Limet actually pushing the wheelchair. One of the two little bit of fun there uh cam any notes for us Uh, i really love the production
1: design like the the all the apartments look kind of like sparse you know like james mason does not live a glamorous lifestyle Mm -hmm. as a spy you know stands in contrast to some of the uh, more fanciful spy stuff we tackle on the show uh and even when they're just going to like spy offices you know it's like file cabinets pretty stripped down stuff uh really enjoy that aspect of the world building um a couple other things um james mason versus maximilian shell i appreciate that the movie tried to convince me that james
0: mason would win <laughs> yeah it really, it really like I, I think it was just trying to say that like the the rain was on his side is that is that what gave him the edge in the end I guess so because uh, that is not a fair fight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's a real like uh, oh, I don't know. That's like the Karate Kid going up against.
2: Yeah. Well, he had that cast right on his hand that he was kind of smacking him with. So I, I, maybe that gave him the edge.
0: What was that made of? Did they make casts like of lead back in those days? Because he whacks a few people with that, or maybe it is just Maximilian and like he just falls like a stack a of, ton of bricks, like a stack of bricks, a form of bricks, some <laughs> bricks. He falls like them. Yeah, uh, great death scene, though, uh, when he's crushed between the boats. Or is he? Oh, <laughs> dot, 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 post-credits. Uh, in terms of uh, my notes, I, I did mention uh, spotting David Warner in the Edward II performance, very young, a uh, bit, uh, bit of acting there for him. Maybe one of his earliest credits, I'm not sure. Um, and I just wanted to throw it out. I mean, I, I did think on our tenetometer, which is our scale of uh, plot complexity, Uh, This is ranking quite high, and yet it isn't. Do you know what I mean? Like, it it purports itself to be a very complex spy thriller because it throws these complications in. But really, it is just this guy from overseas is trying to... uh, What is he trying to do? Wait. Can someone explain this to me? What is actually what is his Maximilian's plan? He's smuggling secrets, right? That's the idea of smuggling yeah. secrets. Right. There we go. It lost me yeah.
2: there. He's, well, and he, the, the secrets have kind of the secrets have kind of stopped coming, right? Because the idea is mm. Samuel Fennin figured out his wife is a spy. He stopped bringing home all the yep. secrets, so she's not sending anything out. He came over to try and figure out what was going on, and then they end up killing Fennin, and it all goes from there. This is why you're here, Jeff, to clarify. But
0: yeah, I'd say like on a scale of one to 10, we haven't really like set out the, the scale of the 10 I'm just saying it's kind of high.
1: Yeah, I, I wrote down in my notes, this movie is kind of a cleanup job and you're seeing them kind of recover from a messy fallout, like eliminating
0: all the elements, all the threads. Yeah, for sure. And the last thing I had was more of a question. Is Harry Andrews the MVP? Um, probably, Yes.
2: I mean, Roy Kinnear, is. It puts a good innings too. I would say he's. It's he's the male MVP with um the actress playing Elsa, the the female MVP. Yeah, she's really mm. great. I mean, then they talk yeah. a little bit in the commentaries like how she. I mean, she was originally like she in her younger days was a beauty. You know, she was well known as that was as a being a beautiful actress, and she just went into this like wearing a little makeup she's wearing she went and picked out the ugliest wig possible um she really went in there deep on on that so i thought i thought she was great too but yeah uh, harry andrews uh, like he would fell asleep every time you see him he's falling asleep on screen i thought that was great
0: it, it was cute when they went back to james mason's house and uh, everyone was having a drink And he said oh no not until uh, sunset i might fall asleep and he just falls asleep anyway
2: <laughs> and he's on surveillance and he falls asleep in the theater how does he do mm-hmm. <laughs> what is he doing
1: I I thought that uh, yeah Simone Signoret gave the best performance. Okay. But that Mendel was the most fun performance.
0: Okay, much like the Oscars we're going <laughs> to split to best uh, man and best woman Is that what sure. we're doing here. Okay. Or
1: we're doing Golden Globes comedy and drama. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's, the, he's the comedy winner, she's the drama winner. <laughs> sure.
0: Great. Yeah, I'd vote for that. Uh they both get yeah. my vote. So yeah, perfect picks there. All right now it's time. Knocklist. I don't think a single car adaptation has made the knocklist yet, Cam. Well look at the two we've tackled that's fair <laughs> that is fair um i mean if we had tackled
1: spy who came from in from the cold or tinker taylor soldier spy or something like that uh and none of them had made it i think people would be um hitting unsubscribe in uh rapid succession uh, we have not talked about those movies yet though
0: oh we will don't worry though they are coming we, we just have to uh, we have to pass these things out and uh the, the heavy hitters have to be put in between other films so we will get to those films, don't you worry about it. But the question is about this week's film, The Deadly Affair. Jeff, we're going to you first. Do you think The Deadly
2: Affair should be on the list of the greatest
0: spy movies of all
2: time? Uh, I I don't think I can say that, no. I mean, I, you know, and that's that's hard being a Le Carre fan, but, you know, I, I think you just rattled off a couple of other, you know, Lakari movies that definitely, in my mind, should be. But uh this one I think, you know, I i can give a pass on it. I enjoy it though. It's a fun one to watch.
0: Okay. Well that's one no, all still to play for. Cam has I think probably the deciding vote right now, or certainly the deciding where my vote will go. What do you think?
1: Yeah, it's a no for me. I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was fun to watch, but it doesn't kind of like stand head and shoulders above the pack the way I look to, you know, most spy movies that make the knuckles to kind of that hit that level. And I don't know that it has kind of the level of cultural impact that I can also look at as well. So it's a movie that I would recommend people watch. Um, it's my favorite Lacare we've tackled so far uh, on the show, but um, not quite, I think, belonging in kind of the, the upper uh, pantheon there.
0: Interesting. Okay, so two no's, my vote means nothing, which is great. So I'm going to go for yes, just based on the performance of Roy Kinnear. wow (laughs) what more do you need Uh, of course it's a no from me I was probably the least uh, happy with this film out of the three of us but uh, it's not without its uh, good moments, its fun moments there's interesting characters, interesting scenes I think it is one that is worth checking out if you're looking to dive into the Lakari adaptation territory I'm not sure if I would pick this as my favourite of the three so far I think that would still be the Russia house but if that is number one this is number two uh, not far underneath it, Little Drummer Girl is somehow seventh. Sure, despite not having done three, four, five, and six. Actually, Jeff, what were your thoughts on Little
2: Drummer Girl from '84? Uh, I haven't watched that one yet. I've oh. I've heard the the uh, amazing uh, commentary from you all and have have decided to uh, do a pass on that one. So fair enough. The BBC adaptation is very good. It is it, that one is is really good though. I like that.
0: Yeah, uh, I'd say everyone go check that out instead but uh that's for you to pick folks but there you go three no's the deadly affair turned out it was quite deadly and is not making the not the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified another jean le carré in the bag and speaking of jean le carré jeff thank you for coming on the show to uh grace us with your knowledge once again uh for people who want to hear more from you i mentioned the shows on the top but where can people hear more from you
2: Sure, yeah. I mean definitely the the carai cast. If you want to hear more about uh his novels and uh you can find that there. And I'm also covering all of uh Slow Horses at Barbican Station. Um spy right, that's right with a W, dot com. You can find all that stuff there.
0: Uh we have spy rights with an R dot com. Or we should. <laughs> we should we should get that. Just to it's a competition. There you go. Mess with me. That's okay. I can handle it. So I'll I'll just send traffic your way. It's fine. We're we're a one big spy family here. I, I like to think uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. But I strongly recommend checking. <laughs> Wait, did you use that saying because of what happened to Maximilian Schell <laughs> in this movie? I didn't. That's actually no. That's a uh, perfect symmetry there. Wonderful. There I we love go. That. That's great. Great tie in there, Cam. But no, I I, I just think uh, I recommend you all check out Jeff's shows, Popspyre.com, and also he's on Twitter. Uh, well X or whatever you want to call it. Uh, probably Dita Runs uh, uh, X, I would say. That's sort of villainous person, but uh, <laughs> that's the sort of guy. But uh, yeah, uh, I think are you on uh, Instagram too, Jeff? Not really, no. Okay, you can find him on Twitter at least anyway. Yes. Okay. Uh, and there'll be links to all the shows in the show notes below. Just click down wherever you're listening to this episode. But Jeff, once again, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. There you go, folks. That was our discussion on The Deadly Affair, our, I think our third or fourth James Mason film, and definitely our third Le Carre adaptation. Uh, still not the strongest. I think some of the stronger ones are out there. Yes, that uh, seems to be my memory as well. Yes, I know you are all wanting to hear us talk about those films, and we definitely will get there. But I'm glad we spoke about Deadly Affair. I kind of want to get my foundations with people like George Smiley. It's my first time talking about him. It is indeed. Cam, the question goes to you, as it always does. What are we talking about next week? Scott, we are going to tackle our very first
1: Roger Moore film on the main feed. I know it's one that people have been expecting for a long time. We are going to get it out there, folks. We are going to
0: tackle 1980s The Seawolves. Yeah, we got your letters. We got your emails. We know you wanted more, more, or some more.
1: (laughs) But we're going to have Gregory Peck and David Niven. This is a World War II Man on a Mission film from 1980. I think it's going to be an absolute blast.
0: Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's a real who's who. David Niven, Trevor Howard's there as well. Uh, Patrick McNee, it, yeah, it's uh, shaping up to be quite a fun film to talk about. It's one I've had mentioned to me online a couple of times as well. So I'm looking forward to checking out The Sea Wolves and bringing you the first Roger Moore film here on Spy Hard. So your mission, folks, should you choose to accept it, is to set sail and head back to 1980 as we take a look at the Seawolves. And make sure to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, folks, if you need to reach us, you can find us at Primrose0042.